series now called Overflow. And uh, we started it off a couple of weeks ago uh, with, with talking about love. What is love? What does love look like? What is biblical love? How do we know what love is? And, and the reason we started off talking about love is because we're talking about the overflow of our hearts. And we've read this passage before. We actually did a whole series uh, on it called Good Trees. And uh, this is from Luke chapter 6, verse 43. I want to share it with you as we uh, continue on. We'll talk about this every single week. Jesus says, no tree, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Other translations will say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what our hearts are full of is what comes out in our life. What, what our hearts are full of is what spills out into the world around us. And so it becomes very important then that we understand what is in our hearts. And we want to make sure that what we're putting in our hearts is God's love and not things that we are trying to make into God's love. We're going to talk about that this morning. This whole series was, was birthed out of uh, my study and our study on when we did the Great Command, and it's become not just, uh, not just another series where we're going to talk about you know, some of the same things, but it's also been something that God has been teaching me about what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And if you know us as a church, you'll hear us say that, that we want to be a church full of disciples, making disciples, or a church full of people following Jesus. And so what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it really mean? Not just, you know, not, not just what we think it means or idea, our own idea of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ, but, but if we're going to really understand what it means to be Christ, that's what our call is, right? We're, we, our call is to, to live out the Christ-like life in, in the darkness of the world. Our call is to go and shine the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness. If, if that is the call that is put on the life of the believer, then what does it mean to be Christ to an unbelieving world? And so this series, we're just going to dig even deeper than we did in the, in the series earlier this summer and, and to what it means to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But what we're laying out over the next several weeks is becoming our, our process for making disciples. And so we're going we're gonna to look at it over the next several weeks. This is going to become the process that we're, that we're going to start building into the very DNA of our church and making disciples at 6-8 Church. We're going to have a very strategic uh, uh, approach to making disciples, and it's going to come out of that community, out of that family that we have here at 6-8 Church and the family that is in relationship with God as the power source. But we have to ask the question, what is our heart? What is your heart? What is my heart full of if that is what is coming out of me? Now, um, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but have you ever had someone get to know you 
and just kind of maybe, maybe come out of the blue to want to be your friend. You know, it's like they just, they, they came almost out of nowhere, and all of a sudden you've got this person in your life, and they, and they want to be your friend, and you have no real explanation for it. You have no real reasoning for it. I don't know if any, has anyone ever experienced that? Just like all of a sudden someone shows up in your life and, and it's why, why, who are you and why are you here? Who are you and why are you all of a sudden in my life? And um, you only come to find out that the reason they're in your life is because they want something from you right? That's what, at least something that I've had that, that has happened. And give you an example, you know, I haven't been a senior pastor before I started here four and a half years ago, and uh, when I first started, a lot of my friends that I had been friends with for all these years, went to college with the Multnomah, so some of them were missionaries. All of a the sudden, these people that I hadn't been friends with in a long time since we graduated from college were starting to reach out to me. And I thought, well, this is kind of odd. This is a little bit weird. I haven't talked to you in maybe six years, and now all of a sudden you're interested in talking to me. And, you know, they, they maybe send a message or two, and, and then another message comes. And then finally, the, the real reason they wanted to get to know me comes was, hey, can I, can I come to your church and, uh, and kind of share what we're about and maybe be able to raise some funds for, for what we're doing as uh, in our mission, and, and you know, that's, you know they're, trying to, they're trying to follow what God has called them to do and raise money to do that, but, but it was just kind of this weird, um, if you were somebody that was really in my life, then that, that might be something I would consider, but considering that the only reason you're coming to me right now after having not talked to me for the last six years is to try to get into the church and raise money from the church uh, probably isn't going to happen, right? It's just, it's not something, and it actually became somewhat of a pattern with, with some of the people who I went to college with, and they'd just kind of come back over the years and just, and just hope to, to uh, work their way in. And this is not just with friends, but people from outside the organization that I don't really know, and they'll try to come in, they want to, you know, they want to have a meeting, and you can ask Jim about the number of phone calls that he fields nearly every single week about people who want to kind of come in and get access to the pulpit of our church and hopefully be able to raise support for their cause or their mission or this or that. There, there are people who are coming to us, and they may have a good mission that they're involved in, but their motive in coming to us isn't really for our benefit, it's for their own benefit. And this is, this is kind of a pattern, and it, it peaked a couple of years ago, and, and one of the worst ways, I'm not going to, I won't name any of the churches, but, but there were some other churches in town that were looking for a, a building, and one of the pastors was pursuing, I thought, a relationship with me, and I was really encouraged by it, and, and uh, was just, you know, encouraged to get to know another pastor in town, and, and uh, it kind of came to a point where they actually, they came to the church and toured the church. And I thought, oh, this is, this is kind of cool. They, they want to see, see what's going on at, at our church. You know, they're just really getting invested in this, in this partnership, this you know, spiritual connection that we have as, as God's family. And then not long after that, I get, I get the pitch. Hey, our churches, our churches should merge. You know, because they didn't have a building and we had a building. You know, our churches should merge and and, uh, and then, you know, and the pitch was, and then, you know, you could go back to doing worship, and, and I could still be, you know, the senior pastor, and, you know, and to be honest, it was not just, it didn't feel just like, like a sucker punch to my gut, but it just felt like a total betrayal. Like, the only reason you were getting to know me all along this way was because you, 
you saw something we had that you wanted from us, and you were using a relationship to try to work your way into getting it. And that was just that really, to be honest, soured me toward, toward uh, this, this church and, uh, and the leadership of that church. Not our church, but this other church that was doing that. But that, that, that got me thinking when it, when it comes to our approach to our relationship with God. Are we doing the same thing? Are we, are we only coming to God? Are we only approaching our relationship with God because God has something we want? Are we only coming to God because if, if I come to God and if I, if I get to know God, then I will get access to the almighty power of the ever-living God, and he will, be, he will be in my control, and I will have him at my beck and call and at my charge to do whatever I want. John chapter 6 is where we're going to be today, if you have your Bibles. Uh, yeah, networking with cohorts doesn't constitute friendship. That is a very true statement. Networking with, not, with, not that networking is bad. I've done a lot of good networking, but as long as you know that you're both in it to try to uh, get to know one another and spread the name and all that, you know, that, that's a little bit different. But John chapter 6, we're going to read a lot this morning. If you've been here, you know that I've taught this passage before. This is one of my favorite passages in, in the Gospels. I love, I love reading this over and over and over again and learning more and more from it. I love the lessons that are taught here, and, it, and, it's, and it's bold and blunt and direct and to the point, and that's something else that I like. But um, I just want to read, and then we're going to just do a little bit of dissection and make, make an application, and then we'll be done. So this is Jesus the life of Jesus, and we're getting ready to experience one of the most famous events in his ministry. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. So we know this is getting close to the end of Jesus' ministry. The Passover is just around the corner. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in his mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have even a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. You get the picture. There was plenty of grass in that place, you know. And then here's the number, about 5,000 men and plus women and children. So our estimates would be, you know, between, you know, maybe 15 to 20,000 people are gathered around in this hillside where Jesus is. So he said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place. And, and they sat down. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as 
as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over and let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. There's so much here that, that I want to share with you. First, there were 12 baskets left over. How many disciples were there? 12. How many tribes were there in Jerusalem or tribes of Judah? There were 12. There's, there's I think, some significance to the fact that there were 12 baskets left over and there were 12 disciples. And I think it's just a picture of the ministry that, that Jesus was calling his disciples, the 12, into to go and share this bread of life with those who have not yet eaten it yet. There's probably a lot more to it than that, but that's all I have time to share with you about that this morning. But this, after the people saw this sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. It's just it's such an understatement. It's like, really, you think, you, you think this might, yeah, you're right, this might actually be a prophet who has come into the world. It's the prophet that we've been waiting for, you know, there, this might be the one, or it might be better than that, it might actually be the Messiah. But, but here we see... Jesus knew, if, we, if you read other Gospels, you know that Jesus knows what's in our hearts. He already knows what is in our hearts, and because he knows what's in our hearts, he knows how to respond beforehand. And so, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The people were going to come and make Jesus the king and essentially use Jesus as the king of their rebellion against the, you know, the, the, uh, the political uh, leaders of the day and that Jesus would become the king that they had been waiting for all this time. Essentially, they were going to use Jesus to their own advantage. And so Jesus withdrew. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waves grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It's I, don't be afraid, it's me. It's, it's Jesus, it's I am. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. It's very interesting that as soon as Jesus got in the boat, they got where they were going. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore where they had been the day before of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So there's this guy that's able to just kind of make bread out of thin air, and we saw it, we witnessed it yesterday. So wherever he went, that's where we're going to go. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, listen to this, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, well, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. What is the work of God? To believe in the one he has sent. Verse 27, just before he said, don't work for food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. It's very important that we understand the difference between the two. Not food that spoils, but food that endures to eternal life. And this is the work of God, to believe in the one he has sent. Verse 30, so they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? I love the question. What sign? Hey, you know what, Jesus? You know, we've kind of been following you for a while. We've seen the signs and the miracles, and we saw the pretty awesome thing that you did yesterday where you just made all this bread appear out of nowhere. But still, you know what? We just don't quite get it yet. We're just not, I'm not quite buying into the whole idea yet. What sign? We need another sign. Give us another sign so that we know who you are. And they're, they're the, the amazing irony where they go to is here in verse 31. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What is the example that they use for the sign that they're hoping that Jesus will perform? For them to get manna from heaven. What had just happened the day before? They had just eaten as much bread same kind of magic bread just came out of nowhere. Jesus, met, I mean, the, the people of, of, of their ancestors, you know, they would wake up every day and there'd just be this magic bread on the ground. And so it was like magic bread. Hey, God provides magic bread for us to eat. So it's like, here's, here, eat the magic bread. And then just the day before, Jesus provided magic bread, the exact same thing. And still, what are they asking for? Hey, can you do the same miracle that our ancestors, I mean, like the thing yesterday was kind of cool, but, you know, can you do it like they, can you do it like they did back in the day or... Give us a sign that's like that so that we know. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. What is the will of him who sent me? That I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him 
shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. The teaching, it just it gets a little more difficult the more Jesus teaches. It's like, it's like we're kind of climbing this mountain of difficulty when it comes to the teaching that Jesus is sharing. And you can see this in the response of the people who are in the crowd, verse 41. At this, the Jews there, they began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how can he say, I came down from heaven? Jesus responds, stop grumbling among yourselves. Jesus answered, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Even, even though he's teaching the people there, there's, there's still even some prophecy in that statement that he's sharing with us that that is the, in the day to come when the spirit of truth would teach us, we will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Who is the person, who is the only one that has ever seen the Father? It's the one who came from God. Who is the one that came from God? That's Jesus. So Jesus is the only one that has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes, there's that word again, believes, has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet what happened to them? They died. They're all dead. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. We're good with it till that point, just as we're all of the listeners, because, okay, give us this bread, like that's what they just said. Give us this bread to eat, just like the listeners in that crowd. We want this bread. Give us this bread, just like the woman at the well wanted that water. Give us, sir, give me this water so that I won't have to come back here and draw. But then, just like Jesus always does, he takes it up a notch, and he says, the bread, this bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, Jesus just crossed the line into, like, cannibalism. I mean, that's, what, that's what's coming up in people's... We were talking about bread, and now you're talking about us eating you? I mean, come on, Jesus, let's make some sense here. And you would think that in the next phrase, Jesus would kind of add some clarity and just kind of bring it down to, to sanity a little bit, but he doesn't. He says, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink." Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Imagine sitting there listening to this teaching for the first time and where your thinking is going. It's like, man, this guy, he's, he is off something. I mean, something has cracked in this guy. Because if we're eating his flesh, then he's dead. You know, what good does it do, Jesus, if we're eating his flesh? And Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. And I did, some, I did some research, you know, because I thought, well, maybe there's, maybe there's a little clue in the word eats. 
You know, maybe, maybe there's a clue in the actual biblical definition of the word eats, and that's, and that's where the whole key to this passage lies, and, and actually it doesn't help at all. It's just the, the, the definition for eats is crunch. <laughs> so, like it's a crunching in your mouth kind of a feeling like when you're eating vegetables. That is what Jesus is. So, Jesus is giving them this very vivid image, like you need to chew on my flesh and just let it kind of crunch in between your jaws, and that's what he's doing. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me, I mean, think of the imagery of that, who feeds on me. Just think about coyotes eating something dead, just feeding on a carcass. Whoever feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And on hearing it, listen, on hearing it, on hearing this teaching, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? It's a little bit challenging when you think about it. I mean, what Jesus is saying, it kind of stretches us a little. It's just a little bit outside our comfort zone of what we're used to experiencing. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Verse 66, John chapter 6, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. There's some conjecture that when they were laying out the verses of the Bible that they made John chapter 6, verse 66, 666, that because so many people turned away and walked away from Jesus. I can't prove that, but I've just heard that. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And here's Peter's answer. Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus saying you have to eat his literal flesh? Well, I'm not so. No. 
No, no. Jesus was not teaching cannibalism. That is not a teaching of Jesus, okay? That is not, uh, that does not exist in Christianity, and if you hear someone that teaches that, then you know without a doubt that they're not teaching Christianity because, I mean, think about it. I mean, I guess, I guess he's Almighty God, and, you know, he is just like he made the, 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 the bread miraculously continue to reappear. He could continue to make his flesh reappear so that we could all come up and gnaw on the bones a little bit, but I don't think that's the heart of what Jesus was getting at. Well, then what is the heart of what Jesus is getting at? Well, John does such a good job laying out all of these things, so we don't really have to look that far to know what Jesus was getting at, and we actually hear it right here in the end with Simon Peter's response. If it wasn't significant, if it wasn't important, if it didn't help bring meaning to what Jesus was teaching, John would have left it out. But it was important enough for for John, remember Papa John, Jesus' best friend, to put it in here so that we know exactly what to do with what Jesus had just taught. And we can see it in Jesus' response. So Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is the devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. What is Jesus getting at here? Why is he talking about eating his flesh? Well, for one, this, this, might, this might sound like a hard teaching. If Jesus actually literally commanded us to eat his flesh, he would only do it for our benefit, for our good, and we must follow him into that teaching. Thankfully, that's not what Jesus was teaching. He wasn't teaching for us to to eat his flesh and drink his blood like vampires. That was not the motive of all the vampire movies that have ever existed throughout history. That was not his point. Well, what was his point? His point was to believe, right? His point was to believe. Let's go back to to verse 27 and verse 29, which which we pointed out. Don't work for food that spoils but work for food that endures to eternal, eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works of, that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to what? Believe. Believe in the one he sent. And actually, Jesus is going to use the word believe a couple of more times as he's going through this teaching about himself being the bread of life. So why, why, you know, why the, really, the really grotesque teaching? Why the really, why the really, you know, the, the really almost disgusting cannibalism that Jesus is teaching? First, I think we have to understand that to help to, to get the idea that Jesus isn't talking about literally eating his flesh, we can go back to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and gain a little bit of insight because Jesus, when he's having his interaction with the woman at the well, and, and the disciples come back, and they've brought back food, because everyone was hungry, right? So they brought back food, and they were trying to get Jesus to eat. And Jesus' response to the question about the food was, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And, and you know, it's kind of a perplexing thing. It's like, well, did, and the disciples respond, well, what did, did he like go into town to buy food while we were gone? Where did, where did he get this food? But, but the point isn't, 
the literal food, the point is for Jesus, the food that fills him, the food, the food that brings him to life is not the, not the food that we chew and break down in our mouths. The, the food for him, the thing that, that brings him to life is doing the will of the Father. The thing that brings Jesus to life is doing what he was sent here to do, fulfilling the purposes and commands of his mission. That's Jesus' food. His food is not what we're used to eating. His food is fulfilling his purpose and mission. So then we can, we can bring some of our understanding there into this passage. So when Jesus is talking about eating his flesh, is he talking about literally eating his, eating his flesh? Or is he talking about the depth, the passion, the desire with which we pursue him? Is he saying that, you know what, you, 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 uh, you need to just kind of start cutting off pieces of, of my, the thing that always comes to mind, and I'm sorry to disappoint you in such a way, is The Walking Dead. And this is, this is gross, and I know, I know you're going to think less of me because of it, and that's okay. It's, it's just, it's a guilty pleasure, but... But there's, there's a, kind of the, a closing episode to a, a few seasons ago, and, you know, they had resorted to cannibalism because they had run out of meat to eat, and so they were eating somebody, and they were, because they didn't have any way of refrigerating people, like they had to keep the people alive while they took their flesh to eat it. And yeah. That's not, that's not what Jesus is getting at here. He's not talking about that. But he's talking about that which fills us, I think is his point. That which fills us. What is it that we are being filled with? What is it that, that, that is filling us to the point of overflowing? Are we filling our own desires? Are we filling our own natural human desires? Are we like the woman at the well or like the people in this story saying, hey, give us this bread so that we'll never go hungry. Give us this water so that we'll never go thirsty. We are continually driven by filling and keeping the ongoing cycle of fulfilling our physical desires. Is that what is driving us? Is that what is pushing us down the road? Is that, you know what, I just, I just want more to fill my appetite. Someone just texted in that the message translation says, the one who brings a hearty appetite. And then someone said, we're called to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You guys are stealing my sermon. The point that Jesus is making is not eat my flesh and drink my blood. His point is, what are you passionate about that it's consuming you? What is driving you? And this is, this is the very first point to, to being a true follower of Jesus Christ. And I think it's very important that we understand this. What is driving you? And we talked about how, how love and, and heart is kind of where, where, the, where the drive and the passion for life comes from. And if we're going to really follow Jesus Christ, we have to understand that, that by nature, by our fallen nature, because all have sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God, we are all sinners until Jesus brings us into the kingdom, that, that by our nature we are naturally filled with the desire for ourselves. 
Our greatest struggle in all of life is, is not worshiping the God of me. And as we see throughout so much of Scripture, that is a, a great struggle of all of humanity. Our number one idol that we worship is us. And our number one idol that we worship is fulfilling the desires of me. And as you look across our society, you can see without a doubt that that is the number one thing that drives all of humanity. We are driven by fulfilling our desires. And I think the heart of what Jesus is getting at is, is your, your desire to follow me as my disciple needs to take such root in you at such a depth that, that you are willing to put all of those desires that you are right now pursuing and that are right now driving everything about your life. You need to be willing to put those out of your life and be consumed with internalizing me. We've talked about this many times, you know, since Easter, we've talked about it quite a bit, that, that so many of the people who are following Jesus had no motive of actually following Jesus. They just wanted to be a part of the insurrection. They, they wanted to be a part of bringing in the new kingdom. And like we pointed out here, that was a part of what was going on in this story, too, because they intended to make him king by force, and so he withdrew. He wasn't going to let himself be used in that way. And since we know, because of Jesus' own words, that he knew what they were thinking, we know that he's teaching to those thinkings. He's teaching to those thoughts, and he's, he's, really, he's really teaching at some of the underlying assumptions that his followers are making. See, they're operating under the assumption that the point of Jesus' coming was to reinstitute the kingdom as they had always talked about. They just assumed they were right in that, that that was the point of the Messiah coming. That was because that was the understanding they had received, that was the, the, the prophecy that they had been taught, but there was, as now that we see that Jesus came and fulfilled so many prophecies, that there was a lot more to Jesus' coming than just this coming king. that would restore a physical kingdom of God on the earth. So Jesus is teaching to their motives. That's what he's doing. As he's looking at their hearts and he's saying, you are driven by this. You are following me because you want me to become the king of your insurrection. You want me to become the king of the new political agenda that you want put in place. And so I'm going to make it hard for you to follow me for that reason because I want to make sure that you're following me for the real me, not for what you want me to be. Doesn't that kind of sound like us? I mean, I just, just, you know, just kind of put it out there that isn't this our basic approach to following Jesus? I mean, by and large, myself included, I'm not, I'm not excluding myself, but by and large, hasn't our pursuit of Jesus been what we get out of him? Hasn't our pursuit of Christ been to receive the good things from Christ. Like, like, like I want to follow Jesus so that I can live a blessed life. Like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, I, I want to I be blessed. And so we follow Jesus for the blessing. But are we following Jesus for the blessing, or are we following Jesus to know Jesus? Jesus. 
Verse 43 and 44 says, Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I'll raise them up at the last day. Are you drawn to, to Jesus to know Jesus and the Father, or are you drawn to Jesus because you want more free bread? Are you drawn to Jesus, to know Jesus and, and to consume Christ, to, to have your life be so consumed with the passion of knowing and following Jesus Christ and he becomes the, the ultimate priority? In your life? Are, are you following Jesus to know Jesus or are you following Jesus to have a genie in the bottle and just be ready to have this God up there ready to grant your request when you need it? Because like I just said a minute ago, our greatest struggle for all of us and all of humanity is being our own gods. We want to be our own gods. And if we approach our relationship with God in that way, we're still our own gods. We're trying to use and manipulate God for our own advantage, right? We're trying to approach my relationship with God so that God does what I want. That's just about exactly backwards. Are you approaching your relationship with God so you get what you want from God? Or are you approaching your, your relationship with God so that you know God, so that you, so that you love God, that you are filled up with God's unending, never-failing love, and you are so consumed with His love that now whatever God tells you to do becomes the thing that drives your life? See, we've got to kind of get this thing flipped back all the way because Instead of pursuing God for the reasons He's called us to pursue Him, we're still, I think, a lot of us struggling with pursuing God for what we can get out of Him. And that's not why He created us. He didn't create us to use Him for our own personal benefit. He created us, if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, to live in a relationship with Him, to be in community, in family community, communal relationship with Him. So what's driving our pursuit? What is the motive that we have in our hearts for following God? Or is our motive to just truly be filled with God? Is our motive to, to truly just receive more of God's presence in our life? Is our motive to, to know the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Is our motive to know the creator of all things and to know the creator of the universe and the ground that we walk on and to know the God who made all of these things and his desire and passion in making them and, and why he made them? Is our desire to know his intent for all of creation? Is our desire to know his purpose and plans for all of creation? Is our desire to know his purpose and plans for my life and, and the way he created me and the way he designed me and how he wants me after being so drawn into relationship with, with him to be able to be used by him for his purposes and for building up his kingdom and drawing people out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Are we more interested in that or are we just still trying to come to God and say, you know what, God, I really need this. Jesus' response is, you don't need that. You, you need me. Listen to this hard teaching again. 
Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. How do you have life? In John chapter 10, we'll hear Jesus say that that Jesus came so that we might have life to the full. He wants us to be filled up with his life. The only way to be filled up with his life is to, to empty ourselves of our own desire for our own life. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. How much life do we have in us if we're doing things on our own, for our own purposes, for our own agenda? No life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. What does that sound like? That sounds like John chapter 15 where he talks about remaining in the vine. You know, if we're attached to the vine, we remain in it. We abide in it. Whoever abides in me has life. Whoever abides in me has eternal life. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father... So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. They had a little bit of a picture of what was to come, but they still died. But whoever feeds, whoever consumes, whoever is driven by this bread will live forever. So what's driving you? What's the motive of your life? What's pushing you right now? What is the thing that is driving you day in and day out? Is it, is it Jesus or is it something else? Is it knowing the Father or is it something else? There's a lot of good things that drive us in life, but, but when they're out of whack and they're not in their proper place, then, then they become motivating forces that never have the ability to drive us the way that we were designed to be driven. See, we're, we were only designed to be filled with Christ, to be filled with God's love. We were only designed to live and walk in and be in relationship with God. And anytime we try to be driven by anything else apart from that, our lives start to fall apart. Lives don't make sense apart from Christ. And that's why you can spend your life pursuing something and still feel empty at the end of the day because you've never really truly been filled with the love of God. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This is a hard teaching. I know that. I know it's hard. I'm just, I kind of like the hard stuff. I think that's why we were created. Question for all of us today is, are we going to respond like the crowd that turned back and no longer followed him? Are we going to respond like Peter, who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. How are we going to respond? Are, are we going to continue to try to pursue Christ for our own agenda, for our own purposes, to do what we want with him, to get what we can out of him? Or are we going to come to him because he has the words of eternal life? Are we going to come to him because we believe in him and we know that he is the Holy One of God and our desire, our passion, our thing that consumes us is knowing him. It's not enough to know about him. You have to know him. And the only way to truly know him is to surrender your own motive, your own passion, your own drive for whatever is pushing you in life to sacrifice that once and for all and take on Jesus Christ. My desire in sharing this with us this morning is, is also the desire for me that, that I would become this kind of follower that I would become someone who is so consumed with Christ that, that Christ compels me to do what he has called me to do. That there is nothing else in life that compels me more than the love of God. That there is nothing else in life that, that draws me than the love of God. It's a prayer for me that I become and continue to become and be molded and shaped into this kind of follower. And my desire in sharing it with us this morning is that we, as the collective family at 6A Church, become people that are consumed with Christ. That, that we lay down once and for all our motives, our agendas, our desires, whatever it is that we have in coming to Christ and hoping to get out of Christ, that, that we sacrifice those once and for all and lay them down at the altar and leave them there. Don't pick them back up as we, as we lay them down, but we, but we leave them there and we pick up and carry the mission of Christ, which just happens to be carrying the cross, taking on his mission, just like he had his mission, which is why we celebrate and why he celebrated the Passover the way he did. What drives you? Another way of asking it is, what is the why behind your life? Are you the why? Is your family the why? It's good to love your family and to sacrifice for your family, but, but is that what's driving you the most? Is your job the why? Is how people see you the why? Is having a lot of friends and being popular and cool, is that the why? Is finding love in, in a relationship with someone of the opposite sex, is that the why that's driving you? Here's a tough one. Is religion the why that's driving you? 
Are you still trying to work your own way to God? Are, are, are you driven by your own ability to be able to live a righteous life and prove that you can do it on your own and you don't need a Savior? A savior. You, have, you have the power in your own strength to get there on your own. Are, are you and your own religious attempts to prove your, your righteousness and your self-righteousness to why that's driving your life? Or, or is it just knowing God? Is knowing God the why? Is, is, is coming to know Him and, and living in a relationship with Him the why? Are, are you, like we sang about earlier, are you driven by, by, by showing the world that you are a Christian or are you driven by knowing Christ in the secret? Because when you go to Him in the secret, there is no agenda. There is nothing to prove. It's just you and Him. See, it's easy to come to church and kind of prove that you're a Christian, but are you actually living in relationship with him outside of here? What is the why that is driving your life? To know him and to make him known is the why. Someone just texted that in. I want to pray for us and ask the worship team to come up and So I ask you to stand this morning. Luke chapter 6, verse 43, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this time that we have remaining that, that you would just continue to draw us into your love. That if any of the words that I've said have been offensive for any reason other than drawing people into relationship with you, that you'd help us to just get over those and to step into what you have for us. But Father, I pray by the power of your Spirit alive and active and at work in us, that you would do a work in us that, that truly does something only you can do and condemn those areas of our life where we're living for the wrong motive condemn the areas of our life where, where we're living for our own purposes and for our own glory. Father, I pray that you would reveal them to us, that, that you would show them to us, that you'd make them stand out from everything else that is in us right now, everything else that might be distracting us from, from, from what you have for us. Father, I pray that you would show us those things and that right now in this moment as we move towards taking communion, as we move towards remembering the price that was paid so that we might have this relationship. That those things, some worthless, some good, or whatever they are, that they would just be laid down and, and just sacrificed once and for all. And that we would this morning pick up 
the cross, the cross of being a true follower, the, the cross of being a true disciple, the, the cross of, of following you wherever you lead us, whatever you teach us, believing and following because you have the words of eternal life. We may not get it all right now. We may not understand it all right now. We might not have the knowledge and the perspective to be able to even grasp even a small percentage of it, but, but to know that we are following the one that has the words of eternal life and that there's nowhere else we can go to, to follow you. There's nowhere else we can go to, to hear from you. There's nowhere else we can go to, to understand you. You are the only one that has the words of eternal life. And however complex and difficult to understand they may be, we're going to follow anyway because they're your words and you are life. You would never lead us astray, but you have come to fill us to the full, to give us life to the fullest, the life that you have always designed us for, the life that you always created us for. Father, help us to, by the power of your Spirit, lay them down once and for all and to pick up you, knowing you, loving you, pursuing you, walking with you, worshiping with you, living in relationship with you. May that be the most important thing in our lives as your church here at 6-8. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.